0: plus
1: welcome to the new books network
2: hello everyone and welcome back to the academic life a podcast channel on new books network i'm your host dr christina Gessler, and today we're joined by professor hannah Petard, who's going to share with us about her new memoir we are too many welcome to the show hannah oh hey thank you so much for having me I am so glad that you're here, and we get to talk about your memoir and what went into creating it. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I am. My name is Hannah Petard. I'm a professor of English at the University of Kentucky. Um, I'm also a writer, and uh, this is my first. This is my first memoir. It's my fifth book, but my first memoir.
2: I like to ask guests how they landed in their field. When did you know this is what you wanted to do?
0: Uh, wow. Well, that's such a great question. Um, I have always loved writing and I've always loved reading. My brother and my sister were very social, cool, popular kids, and they were also older than me. I completely idolized them. I was not popular or cool. Um, And I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, creating friends on the page, creating stories on the page, a lot of time alone. I don't think I ever thought doing this for a living was an option. Uh, As a teenager, I certainly didn't think it was an option. It might have been something I dreamed of, but um, it wasn't until I think it was sometime after I'd graduated from college, uh, and I'd applied to PhD programs in English and hadn't been successful in those attempts. And I was—I remember being outside with my mom one day, and I think she was, you know, gardening or something and trying to help me figure out what I was going to do with my life. And she said, "You know, you're always writing. Why don't Why don't you go to school for writing?" And I said, well, "You can't do that." Nobody does that. And she said, sure, sure they do. You know, there's this thing called an MFA. And believe it or not, you know, I'd had this very academic childhood. I'd gone to some really great schools. I was lucky about that. I knew about PhD programs, but I was completely oblivious about MFA programs until my mom sort of put them the idea in front of me. And then and then I started researching it. And then it felt like it still felt like a dream, but something that was at least within within range. I'm not even sure if I answered your question or... <laughs> I do that a lot.
2: You totally did. Um, I'm thinking back to when you were talking about what, what were your friends and where did you find them? Were the characters in books your friends?
0: Well, I certainly loved spending time with them. I don't know that I... I didn't, you know... Oh carry them if i if once i'd closed a book i don't think i necessarily carried those characters around with me as um conversation pieces uh but they were a way to pass the time and then another way to pass the time was in my own imagination and having conversations with invented people uh it's i still when i'm in my car alone i will have imagined Conversations with real people, with imagined people. Um, So it's, it's. I think I just have a a brain that likes to be in conversation, whether it's with itself or other people. There's just a lot of talking going on, a lot.
2: And that part of you really comes through in your new book. We are too many. Can for listeners who haven't seen the book yet, how would you describe
0: it? Sure, it's (laughs) it's my funny. It's my funny memoir about my divorce and about my ex-husband's affair with my former best friend. And and I say funny, um, I mean it, I think it's I think it's heartbreaking and I think it's sad. Uh it's also six years in the past, and um so I have this, you know, this distance between my life then and my life now. And so I'm able to see sort of the hilarity of it. Um, but it's, so it's a book about divorce. It's a book about infidelity, but it's also, um, it's really, I think more than anything else, it's almost a coming of age story about me, uh, you know, being 40 something and finally stepping into the life that, I want to have and not living through, um, my ex-husband's version of life or my best friend's version of life. So it's, and I think that's why I want to call it funny in some ways that, um, you know, a 40 year old woman has a coming of age story, uh, you know, and it, and it definitely also grapples with, um, some of the my childhood and some of the quote-unquote trauma that informed my bad decision-making in my 20s and 30s that landed me in a marriage that I probably should never have been in in the first place.
2: (laughs) You have two dedications for your book. One is to Elmer, who we meet in the book, who was a very good dog. And the other dedication is to
0: Jeff, who lets you be weird.
2: Was part of your coming of age embracing your weirdness?
0: You know, I, I think that might be right. I, 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 that's a Yes, I love that question as well. Um, about a year after my divorce, I started dating someone in, in a kind of serious way and serious because he has a child. So I think anytime you date somebody with a child, it's automatically serious because you are saying, if you like this person, you might end up with a child in your life that you hadn't been anticipating. So I started dating. This is, this is both a long and a short way of answering your question. Um, So I started dating this guy and it was around the time of maybe a couple months after we'd been dating, there was an eclipse. And uh, we, you know, made our funny little eclipse glasses and everyone put pictures of their eclipse, um, you know, what they were doing during the eclipse online. And, I remember getting this text from a friend who, a very dear friend of mine who knew me and knew my ex-husband and he was staying friends with both of us through the divorce, which is fantastic. And he texted me because I'd put a picture of myself in my goofy uh, Eclipse glasses online. And I was there with my boyfriend who is Jeff, who lets me keep it weird. And my friend texted and said, you look so happy. I haven't seen you look happy like this, I think, since I've known you. And I think about that text and uh, whatever he saw in that photo. And it brings me such great joy that I am happy and that people can see that I'm happy now. Uh, It also, it's a a two-edged sword because it makes me sad that for so long, I must have been suppressing some amount of joy or goofiness or weirdness because I didn't feel comfortable for whatever reason. And I want to blame myself more than I want to blame anybody else, but I didn't feel comfortable letting that, you know, quote unquote weirdness out, but it's definitely there now. And it's something that I embrace on a daily hourly basis.
2: In that, intro part of the book, you talk about some of the complexity of writing a memoir. It's almost the ethical checklist of, is this my story to say? Is this my memory to share? What can I I share? How do you work through those parts of telling your story when they're going to intersect with someone else's story?
0: Christina, I am still trying to navigate those, the questions that I asked myself in the introduction and the question that you just asked me, I don't know that I have an answer, uh, yet. And I, I I am interested in writing about intimate things. I'm interested in using my experiences as a way to connect with other people. I don't know how to do that without, you know, Oversharing in some ways, um, and I'm also aware that some of that oversharing necessarily f- steps into other people's business. So I don't. Th- the answer is I don't know. It's one of the way. It's one of the reasons that I've written this book. It's also something that I'm already working on with my next book, uh, continuing to navigate uh, what's up for grabs, what's not up for grabs. But I promise if I come up with a good answer, I'll let you know. I'm, I'm a little bit nervous that if I do come up with an answer, it's going to mean I'm going to stop writing. <laughs> so, so I love I love having these questions that continue to perplex me because it's a reason that I continue to write. In pursuit, of, um, in pursuit of newer questions, better questions, and occasional answers.
2: You bring up those questions in the introduction in the setting of having been in a workshop and other writers in the workshop asking you if you were mining your own stories, a place where you thought it was your story, but maybe it was something someone else showed, shared with you, and really thinking hard about what all those things mean. Um, One of the things that you chose to do was change people's names. Did that help you in setting some boundaries?
0: That's a really interesting question because when I wrote the memoir, I was using real names. So when it was me and my notepad and my computer alone in my office, all the names were the real names. And it was only after I had a finished product that the names were changed. So, and in that time, since I've changed the names, which has been about a year, I can only see them and hear them as the new names. And they certainly have become characters in many ways, which I think is both a Good thing and possibly also a dangerous thing. But when I was writing it, I, I was because I was still very much haunted by certain conversations and certain experiences. I wrote them as I recalled them, and that was using the real names.
2: You write the book in three different forms. The first part is almost like we're reading a script. We don't have the blocking directions, but we have the direct dialogue. The second part is um, a genre-bending way of bringing yourself and your soon-to-be acts right into your brain, right into your thoughts. And the third part is what we think of as a more traditional narrative style. How did you arrive at this
0: structure? So the... Conversations, part one, which, as you say, it's very much in the form of a play or a script. That's where the book started. Um, and like I say in the introduction, these it very much this this project was born out of certain conversations that I could not get out of my head. I didn't want them in my head. But they were there and they would replay and replay and replay and when i first started to write about this experience of um, my husband's infidelity and the betrayal of my best friend i wanted i wanted to do what a fiction writer does which is turn it into fiction and um, you know pick at it from from a, a novelist's point of view I tried writing it from his perspective, from her perspective, from my perspective, and none of it felt real or good or true. And so I think out of frustration more than anything else, I just started writing down the dialogue and it was so satisfying and so gratifying to get that dialogue on the page. And the more I wrote it, the less I was living with it, and the less I was recalling it. So I knew, I knew what I was doing was helping me just as an individual because I was getting those that that repeat conversation out of my head. But then when I when I realized that I had something that could maybe be a part of a book, and I started reading it with an eye of other readers in mind. That's when I became very aware of there's only so much time I can spend in these conversations with these people before that mode of just scripted dialogue becomes tedious. And so I wanted to use that first section as a way to allow readers to just immediately be dropped in to the sounds of this world and these people's lives and then end it before, end that first part before, hopefully before it becomes annoying, um, or or, as I say, tedious. Um, and then the second part, the second part very much came naturally out of the writing process. I was, I was writing that very last chapter in part one. And, uh, it's, it's a, it's a conversation between, my ex-husband and me back when we're first deciding to live with one another. And I realized that I was writing it as though I was writing it in a way that I wish it had happened, but it hadn't happened. And I was giving myself, um, like a lot more sort of, I was just making myself more in control of the situation. I was giving myself more intentionality than I had at that time in life. And, I just kept hearing my ex-husband say, there's just no way you would have said that. You're a liar. Now you're lying. And and that's where part two came out of his voice in my head, basically challenging me to tell the truth and to not start rewriting history just, just because I wish I had behaved differently or I wish I'd had the nerve to say something that I hadn't back then. So part two very much just became um, something else that I do in my head, which is, you know, what if things had gone differently? What if he and I could have a conversation as we are now? What if we'd both made some realizations about ourselves earlier? Um, might things have been different? So so that's that second section was a surprise to me. And I love as a writer to be surprised and to to start to see moments of the narrative that hadn't even occurred to me. And then as you say, part three is just, um, it's, it's the most traditional. And I wrote the book in that order, part one, part two, part three. And I don't think that I could have written those traditional, um, basically short anecdotes about my life, about my childhood. I don't think I could have written them first, or without having the material in parts one and part two on the page. So I think the reading experience very much mirrors the writing experience for me, if that makes sense.
2: It does. And it makes sense as far as the genre of memoir and the experience of creating memoir and looking at memory. There's a real fluidity to it. It's not a, a linear timeline And the book takes us back and forth in time. And it takes us through, by having these three sections be in completely different forms, it takes us through very different ways of processing what is a traumatic experience. Um, You met him at a time when something very difficult had happened to you. And the way that it ended was also very difficult. So that could be considered trauma. I'm wondering how, when it went to your editor, how they felt about it. Often they feel like they want the book to be in one clear form.
0: I'm really lucky. My editor saw this book more clearly, I think, even than I did. And I remember our very first conversation, she used this expression. She said, I want this to be a bullet of a book. And I think as, as problematic as a bullet is, I understood what she meant that it's it's a book that's meant to be read in a single sitting two sittings at most and it's meant to have immediate and long-lasting impact and so she was on board from the beginning with those first with those three sections um and what's been very interesting to me is to to watch the way different readers respond to the different sections. Uh, I remember I knew that I was onto something when my editor read, so this, or not my editor, my agent, before before I had an editor, when my agent read the book and she, she called me right after reading the second section and she just kept saying, oh my gosh, the Dobro. Oh my gosh, Hannah, this is... The Dobro, the Dobro, um, and if you read the book, you'll get it, <laughs> the Dobro. But but she just loved the second section, and she said, "I can't. I'm already talking about this to so many people. It's it. You know, it, it's just something I want to share." And my editor, um, on the other hand, you know, she loves the third section she thinks it's just beautiful. And I love that she thinks it's beautiful, obviously, but she's also very aware that you can't have that third section without parts one and parts, part one and two. Um, I'm not even sure where, what was the question? What have I done? Christina, I've talked so much. I don't know what I'm supposed to be saying.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You say what you should be saying. You're taking us through the three very different uh, forms of the book and how it's received, and and how
0: it uh, went through your editor and your agent to get to the bookstore. Yes, yeah, so so my editor was on board from the beginning, and and that's one reason why I knew she was going to be a great fit for me and for the book. And she she tightened. That's what she did. She went in there and she she tightened it up, and we got rid of you know some of the some of the extra conversations that didn't need to be there. And then she would, you know, every conversation that we'd have, she'd say, would end with a question. She'd say, was there anything, is there anything about X, Y, and Z that, that isn't in there? And it would always, it was like the best therapy in some ways. Her question would just make me think of a million different things. And um, so it, the book, both got tighter and tighter and it also grew. It was a much shorter book. It's already a short book, but it was a much shorter book when my editor first saw it. And she definitely helped, uh, helped me find a lot of the connective tissue that was necessary to hopefully um, bring all these disparate moments together into something cohesive.
2: You mentioned earlier that you went through an MFA program. Was your focus on fiction or memoir, or did you have to choose a track?
0: It was a track. I was at the University of Virginia, and I was accepted for fiction, and that's what I studied. And I very much, my whole time there, identified as a short story writer. I worked with um, Chris Tillman and Deborah Eisenberg, but Ann Beattie was the the writer who I just glommed onto, and I, I I say glommed onto because I was determined to um, <laughs> work with her regardless of her feelings for me. And fortunately, I wore her down, and now she is just a, a dear friend, and I still think of her as a mentor as well. But uh, and and I admire her writing to no end. But she she was she was a great teacher for me, and she taught me not to be lazy, and she taught me to demand more. But it was definitely everything there was that I was writing was supposed to be fiction. I definitely went through a spell of um, writing about myself in third person. But even that was, was fiction. And it wasn't until... Honestly, it wasn't until the affair that I started to think about nonfiction. And Adam Ross at the Swanee Review is a huge part of why... This book even exists. He, I can't remember how he got my number, but it was right after my third novel came out. Listen to me. I got a phone call from Adam. I loved Mr. Peanut, so I was so excited to hear from him. I knew that he had just taken over the Swanee Review, so I was hoping that he was asking me to write something, and he was. He was calling to ask for a story, and it just so happened um, that his phone call, and by the way, so the book begins and is with, uh, you know, by by thanking basically Adam, but this <laughs> this anecdote is not in the book. <laughs> so he called me, and it happened to be that it was I had literally gotten back from New York from finding out that. My husband was having an affair with my best friend. I had been to see the lawyer, I think the day before I'd gotten this phone call from Adam. And so Adam called me and he said, I want you to write a story. You know, tell me, like, tell me what things you're you're thinking about writing right now. And within, you know, here's somebody I'd never met before. Within Three minutes I was telling him about my week, about the way that my life had just been, you know, turned upside down, Um, the fact that I was on book tour writing about this marriage in crisis or, you know, promoting a book about this marriage in crisis. And by the, I think the phone call ended up being three or four hours long. And by the end of it, he'd gotten me to agree to write an essay about the way that, I have always cannibalized my life for material and how I wrote this book about a failing marriage that was very much about my husband and me and then the book comes out and on the day the book comes out I'm getting a divorce and and so I I started you know I I, I think I, I I started writing about me in an honest way not in third person and uh if it weren't for that essay I definitely And if it weren't for Adam pushing me to write about myself, I don't know where I'd be right now, but this book wouldn't exist. So I was very much a fiction writer, very much a short story writer, wrote a novel, which I treated as a collection of short stories, but it turned it into a novel. Um, And that's what I thought that I was always going to do until this project.
2: Writing in first person and admitting to the world that it's your story is a whole act of bravery. What support did you need or find for yourself so you could do that?
0: It's terrifying to to expose yourself in this manner. It's also thrilling. You know, there's this great passage in... Annie or knows, I want to say, simple passion. There's a passage where she talks about being a person who writes about herself and, and her intimate life and being accused of being a kind of um, somebody who is exposing themselves and, and looking for attention. And she points out that the distance in time between when A person is sitting down and writing about themselves and when the book actually is published, year and a half, two years, three years, whatever the amount of time is between sitting down and publication, that there is a kind of safety in that time where as a writer, you can tell yourself any number of things might happen between now and then so that it might never be seen by anybody else. So there was that kind of protection for me at first that I'm writing this thing, who knows if it will even see the light of day, but let's, but it's at least helping me sleep better at night for the time being. So I'm going to keep working on it. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's just a, a small collection of people at the end of the book, uh, who I thank, and those are all the people who, um, over the course of writing, this just told me to keep going and uh, basically validated my conviction and my willingness or my, my need to, to write about me. And, you know, Ada Limon was just essential as a friend uh, for helping me through this time. Jeff was essential. Um, My sister was essential. There, there were just people who, who kept goading me, um, and and that's really lucky to have as a writer those people who say, you know, just don't stop. It's it's the right thing to do.
1: slash NBN fifty to get
2: fifty percent off. Whether you write fiction or memoir, it's that universal human truth that keeps us turning the page. One of the universal truths that came through in this book was that could it have turned out differently? Could it have been different? It seems, especially when we get to the third part with the narrative version, that you realize that this was a relationship that Couldn't go the distance. Is
0: that right? Probably. Probably. I I don't know. For for a long time, my ex-husband was my best friend. Before he was my husband, before he was my boyfriend, he was my best friend. And I can't imagine being married to him and <laughs> there are whole weeks when every single day of you know 3 weeks in a row I will wake up and think thank goodness I am not married to him but I also there are days when I still miss him and you know it was only recently that I let my sister actually read this book I've I've talked to her about it nonstop since I started writing it but it was only recently when I had the galley that I gave it to her. And because all along I kept saying, you're in it. Are you sure you don't want to read it? Do you want to make sure that you like how I've presented you? And she just said, I trust you. I know you're, I know you're going to get it right. So I let her read it um, at a time when I couldn't have changed it, even if she'd wanted me to, if I'd wanted to. And I got a text from her, I think at midnight, possibly later, and she had finished the book and she said, I'm in tears. And the next day we talked about it and she said, it just, it reminded her of how close we all were for so long and it made her wistful for that. But she also said there was a lot that she'd guessed at with the unhappiness and the tension and that... Reading the book confirmed and also illustrated worse things than she'd been aware of. And so she was so grateful that that relationship, that tendency of mine to be who I was when I was in that marriage, was no longer. But yeah, this really, sure. But to answer your question, no, it, if it, if it had lasted, it would have been out of my, um, just absolute stubbornness, um, and nobody would have been happy. Um, but it's a good thing. It's a good thing that the relationship is over, but it's also, I can still, I can still see things about him and me as a pair. That was something to admire. Um, even while I think there was a lot of toxicity and unhealthiness between us, but there was, there was for a little while, a real, a real admiration, admiration. And, and that is, you know, that's, that's a sad thing to lose. But I also think what I have now is, is better and who I am now is, is happier and healthier. So.
2: Coming of age stories, we often have to go all the way back to YA to find them. Um, we have to dust off the old copy of Catcher in the Rye, or we have to look at a dystopian novel. But the reality is that we have coming of ages when we're ready, when we can do it. And they always
0: have risk and grief in them, don't they? I think so. I I I feel like I know so many women who are in the age range that I am who have had similar coming of age stories, if you will. Um, so it's interesting to to think of them as being these things that we associate with children. Um, I associate them very much with uh, ambitious, intelligent women uh, who, for whatever reason, societal, familial, environmental, have don't begin to live the life they want until they're in their forties or fifties or sixties. And I do think it's really hard to get to your forties or fifties or sixties without risk and without grief.
2: I was talking to one of my friends yesterday and she said that, um... She happened to run into her ninety-eight-year-old friend when she was out shopping, and how delightful it was to run into her. And I said, "Isn't it important to have a friend in your nineties? Because they realize the rules are nonsense." <laughs> and I think we need somebody in our life who's a you know a beacon up ahead of um, what's possible.
0: Um, I think that's so great. You know, my my mom is not in her nineties, not by. Not by a long shot, Um, but she is, you know, she lives 0.7 miles away from me. And she has, since I was, since I was in my 20s, um, since my sister and I were in our 20s, she has said 40s are the best, 50s are really close to 40s, 60s are great and awesome. And she said 70s are, you know, 70s are interesting, but she's always impressed upon us that 40s, 50s, and 60s for women are the glory years. And as somebody who has stepped into the 40s, I am totally trying to embrace her philosophy and to remind myself um, every single day, I've never been this old before, but this is also the youngest I'll ever be again, and just appreciate just try to appreciate it. Because in my 20s, I certainly couldn't appreciate just how young and uh, how elastic. And I mean that like skin wise, not brain wise. (laughs) Um, But there was just so much I couldn't appreciate about youth when I had real, real youth. So I'm really trying to appreciate all of it now, if that makes sense.
2: Early in the book, you have a quote by Linda Rosenkrantz. Did it help inform the title, We Are Too Many?
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, I love her book. She's got this beautiful book called Talk. And Talk actually influences the, the landscape, the formatting, and the structure of part one. Her Talk is a novel entirely in dialogue. And it's very much a book about uh, psychoanalysis. And there's also a young woman who's a writer, and there's also sex and friendship and betrayal. Uh, So her book was hugely influential, but there is a line um, in her book, we are each too many people. And it's, it's talking about the various lives we all have stored up in us. And because of the nature of time and physics and whatever else, um, we we only get the one, we only get the one life and the one, and we, when there are choices, we get the one choice. Um, even if you pick to live with two or three people, you still have to prioritize when you're going to be with each of those two or three people. So, yeah, it's it is absolutely the title comes from her wonderful book talk and it's a nod just to to all of the different options that are living in all of us all the time. Um it's also it's my father when he saw the title he said, "Is it about overpopulation? We are we're too many people in the world?" And I said, "No, we're too many people in my marriage." And he said, "Oh, I thought it was about overpopulation. So um, I'm, I'm also prepared for that misconception.
2: You talked about um, mining your life for material or cannibalizing your life for material, and that the book prior to this one was about a marriage um, that was falling apart. When you wrote it, Did you realize how much of your life you were mining, or was it really when you were on the book tour and all the shoes were dropping?
0: So that book, Listen to Me, started with a real life event. My husband and I. Used to drive from Chicago to Charlottesville several times a year because our families, both our families, were in Charlottesville. So we were there for Thanksgiving, we were there for Christmas, Um, even though we were in our 30s and technically adults, we were there in the summer. Um, My mom had a farm, so it was just there was always a reason to make that drive from chicago to charlottesville and we we had a dog elmer who made the drive with us who we treated absolutely like a child and one on one of our drives to from chicago to charlottesville we got a very late start I was angry that we got a late start. I'm the kind of person who wants to be up at six a.m. and on the road, so that by the time the sun's coming up, you feel like you've got a couple hundred miles behind you. And you know, my ex-husband was not of that mindset. So it's a road trip that's already starting off with tension. And I, it's, I actually had a, a wonderful teacher, Chris Tillman, at the University of Virginia, who once said, if you ever, if you ever don't know what to write about put two people in a car who don't like each other and send them on a road trip. So (laughs) in real life, um, my husband and I, who at the time I loved, uh, but in that moment, I hated because we were getting such a late start. I was literally getting into a car with somebody who was driving me crazy. And we ended up driving into um, a massive storm system and around uh, West Virginia, we started looking for hotels um, because land—it it was just—it was—it was terrifying, and so we started looking for hotels, and all the hotels were booked. Um, and so my sister, you know, got online from where she was living in Washington D.C., and she found us a hotel. And you know, long story short, at around midnight, um, we wind up in this. Hotel at the top of a mountain, and the hotel didn't have power. She was only able to book the reservation because it was she was online in DC, but the hotel itself wasn't online. So we got there, and we ended up spending the night in this hotel without power. And I don't know how many people have done that in this world, but it's terrifying, especially if you are like me, um, scared of the dark. <laughs> and so. Uh, it, now we have two people who are annoyed with each other, and one of whom is scared of the dark spending a night in a hotel. And I just remembered thinking as I lay awake that night not sleeping because I was so terrified um, of what might happen, I just remembered thinking that at the end of the day, this is a great setup for a book. And so we ended up you know, waking up the next morning. Everything's fine. We drive to Charlottesville. We spend whatever holiday with our families. We drive back. Uh, to Chicago a week later. And it was the very first morning that we were back in Chicago. I woke up, I was at the kitchen table and you know, I was writing this book about these two people um, starting off on a road trip, heading for, I just knew I needed to get them to a hotel without power. Um, and so the, the event of the book was our event. And I think any writer listening knows that if you're starting that close to home, it's going to be really hard not to start imbuing the characters with the uh, personalities and the foibles of the two people who really experienced it. And it just so happened in real life that, um, you know, I was able to see at the time I had this maybe more loving lens that I was looking through, but I was able to see the exaggerated uh hilarities or exaggerated, um, sort of personality, personality flaws of, of me and of my husband. Um, and I, I just decided, well, they're going to be hilarious and I'm going to make I'm going to make my character even more scared of the dark and even more addicted to reading uh, you know, news feeds about terrible crimes. And I'm going to take my husband and I'm going to make him even more of a Luddite. And I'm going to make him, as much as he hates technology, I'm going to make him hate technology even more. And then I'm going to send them on a road trip. So I did. I did know that I was borrowing from a real life couple. And the real life couple was me and was my husband. I didn't realize that I was also in doing so I was really going to start the exercise of real introspection and looking at a relationship that was perhaps um, already in quite a bit of trouble and trouble that I didn't quite see until, until I'd written the book.
2: Knowing is such a layered thing, particularly if there's risk in really knowing all of it, how does writing memoir help you heal?
0: I think for, I can only speak for me. And something about the process of transcribing those conversations that wouldn't go away, something about the process of getting them on the page where I can look at them, see them, manipulate them uh, for artistic purposes. It allowed me a kind of ownership over them and treating them like material instead of, instead of using them as an excuse to dwell in the past. It's it's just meant that I don't think about it as much anymore. I, you know, I'm, I'm I'm about to start promoting this book, which has me thinking about it again, but in a completely new and different light. I'm not, I'm not the person who, as I wrote this book, was tortured by these conversations and these experiences. And I think the reason that I am no longer tortured is because I have managed to extract them and to use them to serve a different purpose. And Um, it's a selfish purpose. It's a purpose that's helped me um, artistically and emotionally.
2: The you who wrote the essay, the you who sat down to write the book and the you who's going to promote the book represents a big arc.
0: Yes, I think so. I think so. I, at the same time, I'm still learning every single day. and, And I am sure that at the end of every day I could point to one thing that I could say, yeah, I would have done that differently. maybe next time I'll get it right. Um, you know and I, I make promises with myself all the time. You're never I tell myself, okay, the next time you go to a bar and some you know older guy starts yammering on, you're just gonna say, listen, sir, i lovely to have met you but i'm not interested in you reciting the day's news to me and you know i tell myself i'm i'm going to be the type of woman who just turns a shoulder and says, I'm not interested. And then, you know, I end up at a bar and the guy who wants to tell me about the news that I've already read is, you know, in his eighties and he's sweet and it's annoying. And I don't want to hear it, but I also don't want to be rude. And I'm literally talking about something that happened last week. So, so yes, there's been a huge arc, Christina, but I am still um, an entirely flawed human being who is grappling with the fact that she's in her mid forties and still sometimes behaves like she's in her, you know, teens or twenties. But I I also don't, I don't know that that's a bad thing. Um, I don't know that it's a bad thing.
2: Your mom gave you the wisdom that this decade and the next couple decades are a time of really coming into your own. And as you say in your uh, dedication, you get to embrace your weirdness. <laughs> How has this changed you as an English professor?
0: That's funny. I was just last night. I was talking with uh, my boyfriend and my stepdaughter about teaching, and I think I think I'm becoming a better teacher. I I started off in this profession with a lot of energy and a lot of enthusiasm and my older colleagues who I respected so much kept telling me you're going to burn out you're going to burn out and I would say there's just no way I I'm not going to burn out I love it and then of course you know just in time for sabbatical I was cynical burnt out exhausted um every everything I'd been warned about I was there and worse. And I've been back from sabbatical for two years. And, you know, the first year was um, a COVID year with, with masks and watching and getting accustomed to a new type of student who is navigating the world in a completely new way because of the epidemic or the pandemic, um, I think I am more patient, more understanding, um, certainly more generous. Uh, it, I think I'm a, I, so I might not be as, um, I might not have as much energy, but I think that I'm listening better and I'm really trying to give my students what I think they need now as opposed to applying to the classroom what I always assumed students needed. So I'm, I'm trying to adjust and I think being flexible and being willing to adjust has just made me, has made me better. And, uh, it's, I'm also enjoying it again, which is great. It's, it's a great thing because being a teacher, I feel, is one of the luckiest professions. And we should not take for granted the fact that we are allowed to be in classrooms with 18 to 22-year-olds and older and younger and have the opportunity to um make an impression on these minds and to help them figure out how they want to navigate the world. So I also am really trying in the same way that I'm trying to appreciate every single day and the youth that I have um, and the fact that I'm alive and that I'm happy trying to appreciate that. I'm also trying to not take for granted uh, what my role is in the classroom and what I am capable of of giving to these students when I'm in the classroom.
2: What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners?
0: Ooh, that's an, that's a very sophisticated question. Uh, well, I think, I think good art is, uh, art that encourages people to ask questions and questions about themselves and about how they want to move through the world. And I suppose I would love for this conversation that we've had to maybe spark one person's desire to sit down and to write about an experience that they had that has troubled them, haunted them, tormented them. And maybe, maybe it's tormented them because they know they behaved badly, or maybe it's tormented them because they feel that they were taken advantage of. And it, it just makes them mad that they didn't do something differently. Maybe if it just made one person sit down and, and write about that experience And if that one person were lucky enough to, after having written about it, find some amount of calmness on the other side, that would be pretty great. I would say that would be a really job well done for you and me.
2: Thank you so much for being here today, Professor Hannah Petard, and taking us inside the making of your memoir, We Are Too Many. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network.